Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is the Art of Awesome, show number 84. This huge mass of organisms, 100 trillion bacteria alone in our gut, uh, are probably the most important organ in our body that we knew nothing about. And we now know that these bacteria and viruses and worms and fungi all actually probably control almost everything that happens to us. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Welcome to the Art of Awesome. My name is Nick Troutman, and I'm a professional athlete, entrepreneur, family man, and adventure seeker. My goal is to share with you stories, knowledge, and inspiration as we continue on the journey together, searching for that secret sauce to producing awesome results in everyday life. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get to it. Welcome back, everyone, to The Art of Awesome. I am your host, Nick Troutman, and this is the show where we search for that secret sauce to success and the difference between the average and the awesome. Today is Monday, so we have another phenomenal interview with an incredible guest and someone that I've been very excited to get on the show. Today, I get to talk with Dr. Stephen Gundry, who is one of the world's top cardiothoracic surgeons and pioneer in nutrition, as well as medical director at the International Heart and Lung Institute Center for Restorative Medicine. He has spent the last two decades studying in microbiome and now helps patients use diet and nutrition as a key form of treatment. He's an author of many uh, New York Times best-selling books, including The Plant Paradox, The Longevity Paradox, and his most recent book, my favorite, The Energy Paradox. He's also the founder of Gundry MD, a line in wellness products and supplements. And I'm very excited to get to talk with him and discuss a couple uh, key points from the book that I found very thought-provoking and kind of just ask some questions of how this can relate to both just living a healthy lifestyle, but also uh, for any athletic specifics. Uh, so very interesting conversation that we had. And again, just very excited to have Dr. Gundry on the show. So let's wait no longer and jump right into it. Here is Dr. Stephen Gundry. <clears throat> Sorry, Dr. Gundry, first off, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me here on The Art of Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Pro pleasure to be here. Uh, so you've done some incredible work as a clinician, as well as a multiple-time uh, New York Times best-selling author with books like The Plant Paradox, The Longevity Paradox, and your most recent one, my favorite, The Energy Paradox. Uh, you've got a clinic with a long waiting list uh, of patients who suffer for, from autoimmune disease, diabetes, leaky gut, some of these which I've actually suffered myself from. So very much loved your book and a lot of the concepts you've got. In your book, The Energy Paradox, you talk a lot about mitochondria and microorganisms in the gut. And there was a very simple concept in there that, that I thought was very intriguing, and it was the topic and, and the concept about feeding the gut biome instead of just feeding yourself. Um, can you kind of just like elaborate on that a little bit and, and kind of what that means exactly? Yeah. Um, 
the more with every with every book I write and with the more patients I see, uh, it's becoming increasingly clear, thanks to the Human Microbiome Project, which was completed about 10 years ago now, these, this huge mass of organisms, 100 trillion bacteria alone in our gut, uh, are probably the most important organ in our body that we knew nothing about. And we now know that these bacteria and viruses and worms and fungi all actually probably control almost everything that happens to us um, in our lifespan, uh, disease processes. And what's, uh, what's interesting is that uh, part of this book explains that we've, we've suspected for many years that they are talking to us, that they are talking to our mitochondria, but we didn't know the language. It's in a way listening to dolphins and whales and going, well, they're making a lot of squeaky sounds, but I, I, I don't know what they're saying to each other. Well, a few years ago, this, this language uh, between the microbiome and particularly our mitochondria was actually discovered. And the language uh, are now called postbiotics. Uh, so people have heard of probiotics, friendly bacteria. Prebiotics are now becoming known. Those are the undigestible fibers that we can't digest, but these bacteria need to grow. And in turn, these bacteria, when they eat prebiotics, uh, make postbiotics. And those postbiotics are essentially two sorts of compounds. One are short chain fatty acids, and some people may have heard of butyrate already. Acetate is another one. Uh, and then the really exciting thing is that they make gases. And these gases, believe it or not, your farts, uh, are actually a language. And they're called gasomessengers or gasotransmitters. And they include such mundane things as hydrogen gas. Um, that's what the Hindenburg was full of, very explosive. A smallest molecule in the world. And hydrogen is essential for mitochondrial function. Uh, and then uh, hydrogen sulfide gas, the rotten egg smell. And uh, people who read The Longevity Paradox may remember that I was a big fan of hydrogen sulfide because our mitochondria can actually use hydrogen sulfide to make ATP. And the list goes on and on. But uh, the important thing to get out of this book is the more we eat for our microbiome, the more actually we're eating for our energy levels, our health levels. And my, my advisors always tell me, don't mention this, but I always do. Um, Jack Elaine, who is really the godfather of fitness, and if your listeners don't know who he is, look him up on uh, Wikipedia or YouTube. Um, Jack Elaine died at 96. He actually died of pneumonia because he didn't, wouldn't take antibiotics, but that's another story. Jacqueline used to say, if it tastes good, spit it out. Now, what, what he was actually saying, everybody says, oh, well, don't say that. People won't read your books and they'll think everything you say to eat is horrible. What he was actually saying is, I think, uh, don't eat for your 
you know, tongue, your taste buds, eat for your microbiome long before we even knew about the microbiome. And, you know, Hippocrates 2,500 years ago said all disease begins in the gut. And I mean, how do you know all that? So the point is we're beginning to rediscover, to relearn what people have known now for thousands of years, but we just haven't paid any attention. That's awesome. I love how you're saying relearn as well, because I feel like um, the whole concept that, that your gut has, is almost like your second brain is, is not necessarily a new concept, but, but essentially just rediscovering it a little bit. Yeah, um, I was uh, at a, a wellness um, seminar this weekend in uh, Missoula, Montana, and um, had a lot of women in, in the audience. And women have known this forever. Uh, they've had a gut sense, and that's actually a very true thing. And men are pretty lousy at a gut sense, and so men tend to poo-poo all that. But but women have known that, you know, from kind of day one, and they're right. Um, the more and more we learn about the microbiome, the more it's amazing how much it controls. Our mood, for instance, uh, Dr. Daniel Amen, one of the preeminent psychiatrists in this country, now has, you know, come around to say, you know, I think most of what we call mental illness will someday, maybe right now, uh, be a gut dysbiosis problem, will be a leaky gut problem, because this brain down in our gut has probably far more control over this brain up here. Interesting. It's so, so amazing how everything can kind of start and get traced back to the gut. Um, you talk a lot about within the book and, and within your past books as well about different foods and, you know, the, the best food, foods for your gut. Um, and in this book, again, we talk a lot about breads and meats, dark leafy vegetables, nuts, legumes, all that kind of stuff. What would you say if you were to sum it up for the listeners, um, what would be like the three best foods that you could think for us and maybe the three worst foods? In all my books, uh, I think the most important thing to take away from anything I, I teach and write is it's not what I tell you to eat that's important. It's what I tell you not to eat. And so it's the things I tell you not to eat that actually cause leaky gut. And all disease begins in leaky gut. You name it, low energy begins in leaky gut. Tiredness begins in leaky gut disturb sleep, you name the disease, it begins in leaky gut. So you want to, you want to get rid of compounds, foods that associate with developing leaky gut. And way up on the top of the list are most of the grains, uh, particularly wheat, uh, these and corn, uh, even quinoa, these actually have compounds that I guess I've become famous or infamous for called lectins, which are sticky proteins that actually have been shown by Dr. Fasano at Harvard to you know, be the main cause of leaky gut. The bean family, uh, legumes, even sugar snap peas, sorry about that. And the nightshade family, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, white potatoes. Um, these are some of the major culprits in leaky gut. Uh, 
Now, to answer your first question, um, the more we eat foods that the, the microbiome can use as prebiotics, the better off we are. And those include a lot of the inulin-containing compounds. These are, for instance, the chicory family of vegetables, radicchio, chicory, escarole, curly endive, Belgian endive. In fact, at this meeting up in Montana, uh, every day for lunch, the chef made this phenomenal um, chicory salad and uh, didn't quite know why they were making it, but it was, you know, it was a festival for my gut bugs and besides it tasted great. Um, the other sources of inulin are like asparagus, which is in season right now. It's a great source of inulin. Um, any of the tubers uh, are what are called resistant starches. And one of the tricks, so a, a sweet potato, a jicama, for instance, um, one of the tricks of cooking sweet potatoes or any resistant starch is if you cook them and then cool them and then reheat it, you'll actually make the starch more resistant to digestion. Now, why is it called a resistant starch? Because it's resistant to our digestive enzymes breaking these long sugar molecules apart and us absorbing them. So the more resistant it is to us breaking it apart, it means that more of this stuff arrives down to our microbiome, which lives primarily in our large intestine, our you know, large bowel, and then they get to eat it. So again, Jacqueline was probably right. Um, just eat for them and you'll get the idea. That's awesome. So essentially we want the food to be more resistant to us so that it gets more to our gut biome. Yeah, and you know, that's another point of the book. 100 years ago, uh, all of us ate food whole and literally whole. And, you know, there was, you ate a, you ate a piece of grass fed grass finished beef because that's all there was. Um, you ate a potato whole. Um, you ate leaves whole. Now what's happened in our society is we've made everything super easily digestible. Uh, we've ultra processed foods. We've, we've, made, we've already pre-digested most of the food we eat. In fact, uh, scary fact, Kellogg's Corn Flakes a uh, hundred years ago was advertised as the world's first pre-digested food. And it's like, and you know, it was touted, you know, great news. We've already done all the digestion for you. And we, that was code word for, guess what? This stuff is going to instantly be absorbed as pure sugar and it'll kill you faster than just about anything you'd care to name. But boy, aren't we happy. Um, and that was actually the beginning of the end. <laughs> wow. You, you also talk a lot about essentially how, it's, how different things, I mean, we're talking about a lot of the different things that might be bad for our gut, but one of those being sugars. Um, and, and how I think I actually even listened on a, on a previous podcast that you did about how bananas and apples necessarily aren't, aren't very good or anything that, that could be ripe fruit um, because it just has too much sugar. Can you just explain a little bit the thought process behind that? Because it, it's so 
contrary. contrary to yeah what what we were taught all as kids about you know the apple a day keeps the doctor away well um having grown up uh, actually in in the 50s and 60s i can tell you that an apple in the 50s uh was about the size of a oh, a crab apple now uh they were small you might you might get four bites out of an apple and now, of course, apples are the size of you know, grapefruit or cantaloupe. And they've been bred for sugar content. Uh, I mean, there was no such thing as a honey crisp apple when I was growing up. Um, these things, you know, even the name tells you what to expect. Uh, the sad thing is a, you know, a cup of grapes uh, has more sugar, more fructose than a whole Hershey's uh, candy bar, chocolate bar. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I could tell you what I'd rather have. Um, Neither one, but I'd probably go for the Hershey's chocolate. (laughs) Um, So what's happened is people don't realize that uh, table sugar, sucrose, is half glucose and half fructose. High fructose corn syrup, which is in everything now, is about 55% fructose and 45% glucose. Um, Fructose is a really funny sugar. Fructose is not absorbed into the bloodstream. Uh, Fructose is absorbed into this big vein that goes to the liver called the portal vein. And it goes to the liver because fructose is actually one of the worst toxins ever invented. And we take fructose and we detoxify it in our liver into two things. We detoxify it into fat, triglycerides, and we detoxify it into uric acid. Some people know uric acid, it's what causes gout. So when we eat fructose and that's in table sugar, it's in high fructose corn syrup and it's in fruit, this actually makes us fat. And it makes for fatty liver. And as I talk about in the book, it actually decreases ATP production in the liver. It actually prevents ATP production. And people go, oh, I'm going to go have a smoothie to work out. You know, I'm going to have my fruit smoothie. Well, if you want to, you know, whack your energy level, please be my guest. Have a fruit smoothie before you work out. And it's been shown now over and over again that in humans, that you could give them either pure glucose, um, sucrose, or fructose, and only sucrose and fructose will make you make fat in your liver and deplete your ATP, whereas glucose will have none of those effects. So just remember, every time you're having a modern piece of fruit, Uh, you're actually gaining weight and uh, depleting your energy storage. Um, Wow. And I don't think that's what we want to do. Yeah, I I don't think so. And definitely uh, that's not what I'm trying to do either. Um, I've got two more, two more really things of the book that I really picked out that I, that I'd love to pick your brain on. One, you talk a lot about uh, near the end of the book about fasting and, and I, there was a study in there, I think it was uh, four test groups uh, with various different diets. And the ones that did intermittent fasting were the ones that lived the longest. Um, it, so, 
the the thing that I really was curious about is you obviously the start of the book we talk a lot and what we were just talking about a lot about you know the best foods um, for our gut biome <clears throat> and then near the end of the book you're talking about fasting if you were to pick between one or the other between if you were forced to uh, to pick between eating something that's better for your gut or just focusing on uh, intermittent fasting, which do you think is more important? I think that's a great question. So the the study that you're referring to was the DeCabo uh, mice study out of the NIH. And it's, it's, I think it's a really, really, really important study to understand because it answers a, a ton of questions. And I'll just briefly summarize it. Uh, he took six groups of mice and he put them on a, eat one of two diets. And these diets were the diets that were used in these rhesus monkey studies at the University of Wisconsin versus the NIH. And it was a long-term study of a calorie restriction diet. They were given 30% less calories than normal. And they were compared to monkeys that ate the normal amount. And University of Wisconsin found that these rhesus monkeys had phenomenal health span. They were healthy all of their lives, and they actually lived a little bit longer than their counterparts. The NIH study showed that these monkeys had great health span. They were healthy all their lives, but they didn't live any longer. And everybody, including me, debated why there was such a difference in terms of longevity, and we a lot of us argued it was a protein difference between the two studies. So a researcher at the NIH, Dr. DeCabo, said, I'm going to settle this. He said, I think you're all wrong about this. He said, if you look at anybody who is given less food to eat than they would normally eat, they're going to eat that food really quickly because that's all they got. They're hungry and they're just going to you know, scarf it down. And he said, I'll bet you that it's not that we were depriving them of 30% of their food, I'll bet you is that these guys ate their food much quicker. And so they were fasting. They were going without food longer every day than their counterparts who ate more leisurely because there was no rush. So he designed a study with mice and he used the University of Wisconsin food for three of the groups and he used the NIH food for the other three groups. One in each group got to eat a full day's ration and it was always available so they could just munch whenever they wanted to. Two groups, one was calorie restricted and one got a full day's ration, but it was put out at three o'clock in the afternoon. And what they found was that sure enough, the calorie restricted guys, their food was gone in, in a couple hours. It was gone. So they were fasting like 22 out of 24 hours. The full day calorie guys that was put out at three o'clock, they ate their food in about 10 to 12 hours. So they were fasting at least half the day. And again, the other two groups of mice, they were nibbling all day long. And so they followed them and looked at metabolic flexibility. And I talk a lot about that in the book. It's whether your mitochondria, the energy producing organelles can switch on a dime between using sugar for fuel to using free fatty acids, fats as fuel. And normally we should be like a hybrid car. We should be able to go from battery to gas power, you know, whenever one runs low. Unfortunately, the vast majority of us, 80% have no metabolic flexibility. And that's a lot of the book. So 
The all-day munching mice had no metabolic flexibility. They couldn't make this switch. Both groups, the calorie-restricted guys and the ones that started at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, had metabolic flexibility. The punchline came was, when, how long did all these got, uh, survive? Well, the calorie-restricted guys lived about 30 33% longer than the regular eating mice in both groups. Didn't wow. matter. The guys who get, got the full day's food but started at 3 o'clock in the afternoon lived 11% longer than the guys who ate all day long. Now, if you extrapolate that to human terms, that's actually about 10 years more lifespan for a human if you just compress your eating window. And the other punchline was these diets were different. One was a fairly, they both had 20, 60% carbohydrates, but one group had more fat and more sugar. One group had less fat and more protein. The point of the study was it didn't matter which group you were in as long as your eating window was compressed. Now I joke in the book and to answer your question, that doesn't mean that you could eat a pound of M&Ms as your only meal of the day and do great. Um, please don't, don't do that. But the point is this compressed eating window, if, you, if I had to choose, um, that's what you ought to do. And actually, as, as far as I know, I was the first actually to write about time-restricted eating uh, in my first book back in 2006, long before anybody had even known about this. So I've been from, it's my 21st year of doing this, from January to June every year during the week, uh, I, I eat one meal a day. I eat all my calories in a two-hour window from five to seven o'clock and 22 out of 24 hours I'm fasting. And this is my 21st year of doing that. So, so far so good. I love it. I also love how in the book you, you talk about how how you can just do it an hour later every day and then have the weekends off, which just makes it such a sustainable for that 20 some year period um, versus the like fad diet of you do it for, you know, three weeks, 30 days, 60 days. And then eventually you're just like, well, I'm done with this. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I've done in my clinics. Uh, you know, I've been blessed with having patients that I get to study for over 20 years now. And I find out what works and what doesn't work and who can stay with something. And there's even been a couple of human studies that have been published on time-restricted eating. And number one, it's very, very hard to go from, okay, I'm, I usually have breakfast at seven o'clock in the morning to suddenly say, okay, you don't get to eat until 12 noon. And, and most people fall flat on their face, as I talk about in the book. So we have to work our way up to it, just like a new exercise program. But the interesting thing is, if you get time off during the weekends, and you don't, you know, it, it never, it doesn't become a chore, a labor, a diet. It goes, and there's good studies that show, okay, if you take some time off on the weekends, you'll stay with this much more than if I say every day you got to do this and you can't change, um, which is, you know, so that's what I've been doing. I love that. Another, another thought that I just had, uh, so I'm a professional athlete, um, a whitewater kayaker myself, and, and I talk with a lot of athletes. 
Would any of your concepts or thoughts or diets or, or foods, anything like that, would any of that change for an athlete-focused um, diet or versus just, you know, a regular person? Well, uh, as I talk about in the book, the one that I think athletes should read is the Italian uh, cyclist study. So they took uh, Italian cyclists and they uh, put them on uh, a, a diet. Uh, they had to eat three meals a day. They all had to eat the same calories. They had to finish their plates. And one group had to eat in a 12-hour eating window. Uh, 8 a.m. they ate breakfast. At 1 o'clock they ate lunch. They had to finish by 8 p.m., so a 12-hour eating window. The other group had uh, about a seven-hour eating window. They ate breakfast at one o'clock in the afternoon. They ate lunch at four o'clock in the afternoon, <coughs> and they had to finish dinner by eight o'clock at night. So about a seven-hour eating window. They followed these guys for athletic performance, muscle mass. There was no difference between the two groups, but here's the punchline. The shorter eating window, athletes lost weight. They, but they retained muscle mass. The other group didn't lose any weight. And all the markers of mitochondrial repair, anti-cancer markers, longevity markers were turned way up in the athletes who had the shorter eating window and they were uh, not changed at all by the longer eating window. So for athletes, this is, this may be, you know, the magic touch that makes a difference. Um, That's awesome. And it, it goes back to just what you were saying as well about how, if you were to have to choose between one or the other, that, 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 that the compressed uh, time window for eating really might just be the, the key there. I, I found I had a similar effect when, when I would go on that intermittent fasting that I had more energy, um, which was awesome. The, the one side effect that I personally had was um, I would want to eat not because I was hungry. I never felt hungry. It was just like uh, it was a habit that I had to break where I'd like I'd wake up and be like, I feel like I need to snack, not because I'm hungry, not because I need energy, just because I feel like I'm used to it. Do you know what I mean? That's right. I should. You're right. And there's really good data for athletes or for anyone for that matter that exercising on an empty stomach, a fasted exercise, and then eating after that exercise actually has far more benefit than, you know, oh, I'm going to have my pre-workout energy bar or whatever. Um, you actually will do better uh, athletically on an empty stomach. And we could go into the details on why that is, but way back when, when we were starving, and I guarantee you our ancestors were used to starving, uh, if you didn't have the energy to catch that animal or you know, run something down, then guess what? You're going to be dead. So there's, there's actually evolutionary you know, data that says, Boy, when things are the toughest, uh, you have to have a boost of power. And that's uh, it's actually really interesting. It's, it truly is amazing. Um, Dr. Gundry, I want to be very um, cautious of our time together and, and thankful for your time with me. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. I just have uh, a couple quick questions for a fire round before I sign off. One, do you have a favorite quote that you live by? Uh, let's see one. Yeah. Um, 
I want people to eat food they love, but food that loves them back. I love that. I love that. If you were to go back in time to any time throughout your life and give yourself one piece of advice, what might it be? Uh, practice gratitude, even in the worst of times, even what appears to be one of the worst things that happened to you in your life is actually a gift is if you'll, you'll recognize it one day and don't panic. I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's always hardest for me anyway, to recognize in the moment, but years down the line, you can always look back and be like, actually, that really was a great turning point for me. Dr. Gundry, I, I always try to um, give back in any way possible. So is there anything that you are focusing on right now that possibly I could help you with or, or possibly my listeners? So I'm in the uh, midst of finishing up my next book. Holy cow. Uh, every time I write a book, it triggers um, a crazy new rabbit hole that I want to go down. So uh, just... Um, I'll just say, uh, listeners, stay tuned because what I'm writing now uh, may be the most uh, amazing thing anybody's uh, heard yet. It even shocked me. So, Awesome. Well, I look forward to that and most definitely will stay tuned for that. Thank you so very much, Dr. Gundry, for your time and for all the all the information that you've shared in your books, in your podcast, in your social media, where for anybody out there that wants to connect with you, that wants to follow along, what might be the best place for them to do so? Well, then go, uh, I have two main websites, drgundry.com and gundrymd.com, which is my supplement and food company. Uh, got a couple of YouTube channels. You can find me on Instagram. Please come to the Dr. Gundry podcast. So we've got some fascinating guests. Um, uh, and you can find the books wherever you, our books are sold. They're bestsellers. So your local bookstore will usually have it. Uh, if they don't demand it. <laughs> awesome. Final question for you today, Dr. Gundry, what is your definition of awesome? Uh, I'll tell you what, my, my father, um, actually never met a person that he didn't want to listen to. And, uh, growing up, I thought that was the craziest thing I had ever seen or heard. And the older I get, the more I know he was right. Uh, I think an awesome person shuts up and listens. I love that. Thank you so very much for your time. And I very much look forward to your next book and all that uh, you do for everybody out there. Again, thank you so very much, Dr. Gundry, for joining me on the show. I highly encourage anybody out there who hasn't read it, please go check out The Energy Paradox. It is a phenomenal book and very thought-provoking, or at least I found it extremely thought-provoking, as well as check out Dr. Gundry's websites and his podcast at The Dr. Gundry Podcast as well. So thank you for all of your insight that you shared with us today. For all of our listeners out there, if you guys got any value out of this, please, if you could just share this out with one person, share it out with someone who you think needs to hear this. Uh, it could be a friend. It could be a family member. You could throw it up on your social media. If so, please tag both Dr. Gundry and myself so we could share it out as well. 
And yeah, it would just help us build our collective, our community, and share this message and our conversation here today. So thank you so very much, Dr. Gundry. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I'm Nick Troutman signing off, wishing you all an awesome day. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.